Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. Can it be that simple? Talent. Develop a robust recruiting, vetting, and training process to help capable people and then help them to become who and what they want to be. Sales. Have a logical go-to-market strategy. Build the sales and marketing structure and plan around it and then attack and execute the plan with fanatical consistency. Scale. Know where you're going, why you're going. Share with others why they would want to join you. Be clear on who's allowed to join you and what they'll need to do to stay on board. Anticipate roadblocks. Avoid them before you get stuck. And then when you do hit one, and you will, stay calm, problem solve, and find resources to get unstuck. Sounds simple, right? Simple to understand, but not easy to do. Join us as we focus on the tips and tricks and hacks for running a profitable, hyper-growth business. We'll share real-world horror stories and celebrate the victory sagas that will inspire you. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Talent, Sale, and Scale podcast. Today we have a real treat. Uh, Nick Capozzi was kind of nice to, to invite uh, Eloise Les, uh, Leeson uh, make that introduction. She is with Olam, and today we're going to be talking about why words count, why they matter, and how they're going to really influence us and help us in 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 our sales efforts, in our marketing efforts, in our marketing, or even overall communication. So I'm a little bit nervous here because I'm a Pittsburgh accent, talking to a woman who's in English with the Queen's English, so lovely. And so here we go. So with that said, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. And after that run up with the Queen's English, I too am now just a little bit nervous. See, well, you sound much better than I do. I'm from Pittsburgh and we got a killer accent. So, hey, before we jump into this, the, the real question that we ask is why in the world should we listen to you whenever we're talking about communication and how to affect that in our sales and marketing? Why should we listen to you? Because I have a fairly unique perspective on the, the sales, marketing and language side of things. Um, and that is that I have a background in academic linguistics. So that's language as a science and a discipline rather than learning lots of languages, which is also a very noble pursuit. Um, but in terms of the linguistics aspect, it's really about making language objective, where so many of us struggle because it is often so subjective. So I sit in that, that corner where we make language become more of a science um, and help a lot of people to close the gap between what they think they're saying and what is actually being received by the people around them. Well, that's really interesting. So if we look at this from a, uh, how is, what's the difference between language as a science versus, uh, I've often seen language as from a psychology influence perspective. So is it linguistics that ties to that psychology and that's what we're counting as science or is it a little bit different than that? It's it's a blend of both, honestly. I mean, language is is interwoven into every single fiber of our lives. So it has elements of sociology, elements of anthropology, it draws from psychology, um, and it also obviously has a medical side of things as well in terms of the anatomy and physiology that we use when we're looking at things like speech and language therapy. So linguistics is a very, very broad topic, um, but it studies effectively. Um, one of the best ways I ever heard it put was that you're taking a subconscious toolkit around the language that we use on an everyday basis, and we're making it conscious or overt. So when we talk about things like metalinguistics, that's us talking about how we talk, talking about talking. You might also want to look at semantics, for example, or syntax. So how do we put words in sentences to make them make sense? Um, you can look at language acquisition. How do we learn languages very young children from a set of very incomplete data around us? And yet somehow we all perfectly understand the rules of grammar. So it, it's a huge variety and a very, very broad topic. And I honestly could I could talk about it until the other person cries. I love it that much. So you're going to need to do you know give me a timeout signal um, as and when that need arises. Okay, so I'm I'm still trying to understand this a little bit. So you you talked about it from a, a sociology, so we can bring culture into this mm -hmm. context of family upbringing. Um, likely country or even segment of the country. There's so much that goes into this. So is there an overarching way if I'm doing sales, if I'm doing marketing, that I can engage 
the majority of people, knowing that I'm going to miss the mark on some, how can I engage the majority of people? Can you, any, any insights there? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Um, so sociolinguistics or linguistics at play within society, as you've said quite rightly, there are ways at looking at looking at language from a multiple, really looking at multiple different streams of language. So you and your family will have specific ways of talking about certain things at home. And I am laying the foundation for the answer to this question, I promise you. Um, so when you um, are looking for the television remote, do you have something that you call it when you want to change the channel? We call it the remote. The remote, okay, <laughs> or great. Or the clicker, right? The, the remote or the clicker. Or the clicker, there you go. You've got the clicker, you've got the doofer, you've got the zapper, you've got the frank. My family call it the squiggly box. For whatever reason, that's that's still a linguistic mystery. I'll put that out there. There seems to be alcohol we, involved on that one. <laughs> always, we're Scottish, so that's exactly. Although we don't sound it. Um, but one of the the interesting things there is that we all have different terms for the same thing. Um, and when you're looking at sociolects or the languages and vocabularies that you shape within a social grouping, such as a family or a friend group or a workplace, um, you will have words and in jokes and subtleties that mean different things. Really what I'm sketching out here is that there is so much nuance in terms of the language that we use every single day that I can't give you a one size fits all way of engaging people from a sales perspective, except to become as conscious about the language you use and the way that it is received by the other person as possible, because that is the only way that you can overcome differences that, that emerge from different cultures, different languages, different nuance, different body language. Um, and by being as, as observant and as conscious, as about yourself as you can be, you set the stage of being really interested in what someone else has to say. And that often is the silver bullet to having better sales conversations. Okay, so that, that leads me to the one topic that you wanted to hit on is, is listening. So being mm -hmm. quiet is not the same as being engaged, right? It's not the same as being presence. So my sense is based upon what you just said in tying this together, if I wanna effectively show that I'm engaging and being present and listening to you, building up that trust, comfort and credibility at a peer to peer type level, they the person with whom I'm speaking is likely going to want to feel as though I'm like them. And so if I'm using the words that they're using, so for example, if I say, oh, you know what, I'm looking for the squiggly box, we always lose the thing. And I start to use your language, the things that you mm -hmm. give to me, my sense is that's going to help me in a linguistic engagement trust building um pathway is that kind of the idea here there's there's definitely truth in that so i think it's twofold i think the first thing is that when you say you know you want people to you know how can we make people feel that we're really listening to them and how can we make people feel like they're really being paid attention to and that we're present and the best way to do that is to be those things is to be present is to listen actively and that's very much easier said than done um but absolutely in terms of linguistic mirroring as in i'm, I'm listening hard enough that i understand that when you talk about something um you're using a specific set of words to discuss it if i start to emulate that just a little bit we're we're on our way to building a really strong kind of rapport. Um, and again, back to our friend Nick Caputzi, the, um, you know, the rapport that he's so great at building um, is about picking up on people's dialogue, body language, the way that they're interacting um, to build that really strong personal connection. Correct. Okay. So really, and that's the amazing thing that I've always find here, Eloise, is there's really nothing new under the sun. It's a perspective off of this. So Talk to me a little bit about, you, you said here, listening discovery is the best way to close, but the absence of listening doesn't necessarily mean that you're present or listening. So un unpack that a little bit. What did you mean by that? Sure. So in terms of the absence of talking doesn't indicate the presence of listening. I think a lot of us think that it, when, we're, when we're not talking, that we're listening. You know, when your mouth is closed, your ears are open. Um, but you can tell the quality of someone's active listening in terms of the questions that they're asking. Um, and you can tell from so nonverbal linguistics, as in the body language, which is why so many of us are struggling with Zoom calls, for example, um, is that we're all Zoom fatigued because we are so used to picking up on the, the meaning that we see when we see someone's hands or the set of someone's shoulders, whether they're leaning closer to the camera or whether they're further away to indicate whether or not they're more or less engaged. Um, but in terms of the, um, I think we often do find ourselves thinking, well, because I'm silent, I'm listening. Um, and it's just not true. And I think that's, the danger of being silent and only listening to reply 
is that rather than when someone's talking to you and you're being silent and thinking about what they're saying, you're actually thinking about, well, what can I say in there that's going to make me look good? And that's when you're selling or you're conversing from a place of ego rather than genuine interest in the other person. Got it. So if in the communication, so we call it active listening, right? So mm -hmm. in that active listening, and the curious thing is we do this naturally when we're really engaged in a conversation you are so in tune that nothing else in the world matters and you pause and you think through what the other person has said and that pause that contemplation i think brings a sense of additional trust yet for whatever reason in sales the average salesperson i, I forget the the study and, and forgive me for not knowing this but the, there was a study that the average salesperson can only keep silent 0.3 seconds. 0.3, not even, most people say, ah, two, three seconds. Nope, 0.3 seconds in that whole entire time they're talking to themselves, how am I gonna angle this? How am I gonna pitch this? So any suggestion on your part, what can people do to get over this? Because you from a, a science of language are bringing up, I can't really communicate and build trust without this. So any suggestions on your end of how we might be able to do a better job there? That's such a great question. I love that. I think when it comes to getting better at the process of active listening, um, and it is a practice, you know, I think it does have to be very deliberate. As salespeople, and I do have a sort of a, a relative background in sales, which is why I can speak to this with, with hopefully a little bit of authority. Um, but when it comes to selling, I think we're so we have different levels of competence. Let me just bring this back a little bit. We have unconscious incompetence, we have conscious incompetence, we have conscious competence, and we have unconscious competence. I think probably the vast majority of salespeople, as we learn our craft, as we learn to become really great salespeople, and there's always something new that's emerging in terms of a technique or a you said earlier, perspective or something new that we can try in order to attain that new level of success. What the very best salespeople do is they've made all the processes of a sale an unconscious competence. And I think when you can make it an unconscious competence, you're not thinking about, right, oh, they said that, okay, so I, I need to remember this for the future. Um, okay, so I'm gonna bring that back in when I do my close, but I'm not gonna close them too fast because I need to ask my three questions, so how am I gonna do that? And it just gets to that stage where you're so concerned about making and closing a sale that you've forgotten that actually what you're having is not a transactional conversation, you are having a human to human interaction. And for me, I speak a lot about reframing and how important it is that when we are selling, when we do so, and we should always do so from a place of integrity, is that when you stop thinking about closing the sale, you're more likely to do so because you're focused on what the other person genuinely wants and needs. And that is the only time you should be selling in the first place. Correct. So uh, I wholly, wholly agree here. And that's going to go away from a lot of the, lot of the old way of, of doing sales, right? Ryan Reisert, uh, starting to you know uh, create a, a pretty decent friendship with him. He, uh, I like his language where he says, "Solve a problem or go away." Right, and the, the line I always use is, "Your your income is directly proportional to the size of problem you solve." If you are solving, would you like fries with that? Then you're going to get fifteen dollars an hour. Or if if it's more than that, if you're solving, you know, the complexity of how do I distribute water to the masses so they don't die of dehydration, or how do I effectively sell and market and get through this noise out there those are more you know one's way more important than the sales and marketing side but you get the idea those are really important so in doing that if i'm listening actively seeking to serve that person that's going to allow more authentic dialogue and i'm not going to be a scripty and we'll be on the same side of the table right so you know my sense is if you're out to dinner with a, with a with a best friend and she lays out to you, hey, Eloise, you know, I'm thinking about leaving my spouse or some bomb, uh, you know, bombshell on you. You're not going to go, well, let me sell you all the ways not to. You're going to really start to ask questions. So and that goes to that act of listening as well. So other thoughts on that. And I wanted to pivot to the the idea that you had about these three questions that go into closing that I think might tie into this. It, yeah, that's a, it's a great, it's a lovely way to jump from one to the other. I think what's very interesting is that when you, you mentioned about being on the same side of the table and, you know, speaking of relationship problems and that human to human interaction of, you know, my best friend's telling me maybe she's about to leave her spouse. Um, when I approach that problem, if I were in theory to approach that problem, it's me and my best friend against the problem she's facing. It's not me 
trying to sell a solution to someone who might not need it. And I think that's what we need to remember as salespeople is that we're on the same team as our prospect. And if you're not on the same team, then you're maybe heading for slightly risky territory. Um, but in terms of the, the three questions that you can use in terms of triggering a close, um, I also call them the three yeses. Um, and it's really getting the customer to think very, very carefully about the purchase that they're going to make. And as we've just said, you either solve a problem or you should go away. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, when it comes to these questions, so one of the first questions is, um, obviously the very best way to close is to do discovery. You know, that's not, I've not invented that. That's nothing new. No one gets to put their name against that as a quote. But in terms of um, doing your discovery, when you're listing really actively and then you're summarizing, you're going to want to say something along the lines of, okay, so you're looking for, in my case, so from my example, so a client comes to me and says, um, you know, presents me with a problem and I say, okay, so you're looking for really great refined branding for your website that's going to cause an emotional response in your customer um, so that they're going to do more business with you. Is that correct? If they say yes, fantastic. I know I'm on the same page as them as a client. Um, and I can then offer my sort of pitch presentation to them. Um, what I then want to do is, is walk them through how I'm going to meet those needs. And then I want to say something along the lines of, so if I can deliver what you're looking for, is there anything else that you would be looking for before proceeding? In that sense, you actually, you almost want to know, or what more, if anything, would you look for before proceeding? So if they say, well, actually, yes, no, that's everything that I'm looking for. We're ready to move on. That's fantastic. Or if it's no, then you can go, okay, so what else would you be looking for? And that gives you the chance to get deeper into that conversation. Um, and then obviously, if there is there something, and then you can say, well, look, they then present the how you would address the point that they've raised. So, well, actually, I need you to deliver it for me in four weeks time. Then you recap and you say, well, if I can do you fantastic customer facing copy on your website to produce an emotional response, and I can do it for you within four weeks time, would you be ready to, to, to jump to, you know, to make the move to, to make this happen? And they go, yes, fantastic. What you've done is you've asked them to qualify three times at the end of that process. Um, and because we love to think in threes, or certainly in the West, we like to think in threes, um, you're getting them to qualify for themselves and think as deeply as possible about whether your solution is the right one for them. And in triggering the close, you've then set up the, well, actually, I don't have any more issues with this. I do actually need this product. This is right for me to go and buy then you can close the sale. Correct. And now we, and we can do that either on a one call close if it's a fairly transactional piece or we can do that on a more complex. So if you look at it, just taking these three questions, really what I'm understanding or suggesting is we reframe it, right? So we pair it. We don't necessarily pair it back, but we seek understanding by rephrasing it in our terminology. Do I have that right? And as Chris Voss would say, we're really looking for a that's right. So that's a a they know that we understand and usually the reason that people don't do business with us isn't necessarily price or isn't necessarily that um, that we don't have the best solution oftentimes it's because they don't believe that we understand their world so if we can rephrase that and get a that's right we're off to the races now another uh, the the second yes that you're looking for in that what else a uh, good mentor of mine guy by the name of John Rosso takes that second one and says vision of the solution so what you've really done there Eloise is and I love this is you've asked them listen what do you want this thing to look like right what in an ideal world what's this thing look like and they're giving you the solution and then if you can deliver on that solution Amen, hallelujah, we've got it, right? And if we can't, then we talk about it there because if it's a no, if it's an N-O, I want a K-N-O-W as quickly as possible. So we go through that, and then your third yes seems to be, if I, will you, right? Is that kind of that a good summation of that? I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think really, you know, it's, it's you can also just a very, very simple line. Are you happy with all of that? Are you confident that we can meet your needs with what we've just discussed? Yes. Ha Amen, hallelujah, as you just said. <laughs> um, and it is, it's, it's so important that you, that we do that sales process from a place of integrity. Because if, if you're not going to solve that problem, you're wasting your time, but you're wasting someone else's time. And I guarantee that the results you will get from gracefully walking away from a sale where you can't deliver value will far outstrip you making a quick buck, making a quick close, but not being trusted further down the line because what you offered wasn't going to deliver. Okay, so... 
we do all of that. We sum up brilliantly. We, we know whether you're practicing Sandler, Challenger, Medic, Bant, whatever, right? We've, we've properly identified their, their buying process and now we're ready to present. And you have a, a really, I've never heard of this, called the Quest Formula. I'm really interested in how we structure our pitches based on that, uh, that Quest Formula. So tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So the Quest formula, um, again, I can't, I can't take credit for any of this. Um, I think it's relatively well known within the conversion copy and copywriting sales sphere. Um, so I'm not going to pretend to put my cap at that. But Quest in a nutshell stands for qualifying. That's your Q. U is for understanding. E is for education. I also like to call this exacerbation, and I'll come back to that in a second. The S is for the cell or the solution. And then your T is your transition. Q-U-E-S-T, qualify, understand, educate, or exacerbate, sell, solution, and transition. Got it. And that formula, um, when you are crafting, and I, I really like to call them proposals, because by and large, when I think of proposal, I think engagement proposal. Um, and ideally, that should be a personalized experience. Right. You don't necessarily want to be proposing to everybody under the sun. So one of the things that I recommend people do, um, and that I've, I've had taught to me by various mentors, is that if you can put another client's name into the proposal that you've crafted, you, and it, it still makes sense, you need to craft a new proposal. Interesting. Okay, so we've so let me take this this uh, quest then. So we've qualified, and that qualification comes through the sales process. We get that vision of the solution, get the yes, that's right, we understand. Talk to me a little bit about the educate or exasperate. So my sense is that's, I call it poking the bear, right? So you poke the bear whenever you find out what a problem is, or maybe you educate them on that you no longer have to suffer with this. There is actually a solution. There's a better way. Is that the educate, exasperate? It, it is definitely. So the kind of the qualifying the understand is showing the qualifiers, look, I understand your problem. You know, so let's qualify the problem that you have in the context of where your business is at present. So it's kind of making the problem a bigger picture issue for them, mm -hmm. which can sometimes lead to a sense of urgency, which can help you with that close. Um, it's also helping them understand how what you're offering is going to create success for them in the short and the long term. Understanding, as you say, quite rightly, is then you know, going into a more granular understanding of the pain problem, you're uncovering more issues that they might be having, um, and then you're presenting your understanding of it back to them. So you're saying, look, I understand, as we said earlier, that nuanced level of language that you're um, you're not parroting, but you're mirroring. I've understood, my understanding is correct, we're on the same page, fantastic. Then you exacerbate or you educate, and that is, ooh, so what else can we uncover here that's gonna be a real issue for you? What else can we uncover here that you might not have, have thought about? You know, have you have you realized that actually some of the solutions that we have for similar clients address X, Y, and Z? But I noticed you didn't mention that. Could you tell me more? And that's almost like a salt in the wound moment. So you've identified <laughs> that there's a problem. Um, I was on a, a sales, a brilliant sales call last Friday called Five on Friday with Francois Bordeaux and a, a host of incredible people. And we were talking about putting salt in the wound. Um, and it is a terrible phrase, but pain really does sell. Um, but that exacerbation education is, is kind of educating your client about their problem in greater detail. Um, and in many ways, you are also causing that exacerbation of, oh, if I don't sort that, that could become a real problem for me. Right. And you are helping them solve a problem. And I think that's what you're not just making them hurt so that you get the close. It's about, well, look, actually, we need to understand the magnitude of the issue. So we get to the core, to the heart of the problem so we can address it for you. So this doesn't happen again. Got it. Now. I see how that would work in the in the selling side, but you said it's more content creation and copy. So help me understand, see that through the marketing, and I'm thinking more the the SDR, the AE, right? Who has to not only do the sales side, but as sales and marketing combine, and we get this marketing, how do we combine this in the marketing and the email? How how's that work? Mm, mm, great question. So I think for me, what I look at is those those then become areas of inspiration for content creation. Okay. Um, and they also help to inform you in how you speak with your audience. So when you're looking at the quest formula, that's very much for proposals. But then if you're guiding people through, um, you know, if you're guiding people to understand, again. Sorry, backtrack because I'm speaking too quickly. But the, the marketing side of things, um, again, I've heard said from Francois Bordeaux that marketing is very much like receiving um, a flyer through your front door. Right. It's creating that awareness of what's being offered. Sales is someone coming to your front door and saying, 
hey, did you want to talk about that thing that we popped through your door a little while ago? So it's to me, marketing and sales should absolutely be working hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. So with the quest formula, because the proposal sits so much within sales, um, you can reverse engineer content solutions and suggestions for uh, your audience, your target market, that they may not have thought, thought about for themselves by looking at the sales process and understanding what problems have you solved previously. And this is where things like metrics can become so incredibly powerful, because if you say, hi, we're Olim, um, you know, we create great results for people um, for a company just like yours. We increased their average engagement rate by 328% in six weeks time. Does that sound like something you'd be interested in? Fantastic, have a chat here. That's a number that's gonna get people's attention because you've, you've couched it in the context of what they're looking for if you've done your audience research properly. Got it, so that's that's what I was missing there because I was trying to put that that quest in terms of, of marketing content or email creation. And really what you're saying is that's really the, the, the layout, if you will, or the template for a proposal. And so, and the curious thing, um, I'm not sure if you've ever read it, there was a book called The Checklist Manifesto. And so if you take that as a template, you can almost reverse engineer that into your sales process and marketing content to really do the both and, to make sure that you're hitting all the high points to make sure that whenever you you get to proposal that you have everything that you need because oftentimes I think that we get to uh, we've had so many conversations I'm just gonna put this thing together and shoot it over ah, I, I think I know it well enough as opposed to doing the small little nuance of checking this against that checklist uh, to ensure that we do have all that we need to win right so is that a good way of understanding where to use this and maybe how I think you should be a linguist because I think that was that was perfectly summed up. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, it ties in really nicely to something else that we were going to talk about, which was how tiny incremental changes in your language um, can lead to really incredible landslide results. And I think when you are that thorough about looking at this checklist, looking at that reverse engineer proposal, understanding if there are fresh pain points that you've uncovered, every sales call that you do with a particular client should give you insights into similar people in that niche, in that target market. Because the more discovery you do about the people that you're serving, the better you're able to tell them how you'd serve them. Surely that just makes sense. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's mirroring, but it's also reverse engineering from a vocabulary perspective as well. So some of the work that I do involves crafting um, vocabularies for my clients to help them provoke a more emotional response in their reader and also to help them understand what words they might be using unconsciously, subconsciously, that could be causing an impact they don't really want to see. So, and it goes back to that context or d does a certain word, so for example, infamous is different than famous, that kind of thing of when to use Absolutely. what there? Mm, very much so. But also, you know, we, we have... Um, and I, I see this with some of my clients, is that we have certain ideas about what we think people want to see. So an accountancy firm, for example, um, may think that being really good with numbers and being very, very diligent and very, very process driven um, is the reason that people want to do business with them. Or that a financial advisor um, or any kind of lawyer um, you know, there's a thoroughness and there's a trust there. Maybe not so much on the other side. Sorry, <laughs> um, but from a, but from a certainly from a financial um, or investment um, advisor perspective, a lot of investors got to say that we're really trustworthy. You know, you can trust us. We'll be fantastic. And as a customer, I'm sat there going, I think that's a given. Right. I think every single investment advisor should be someone I can trust. So I'm not going to be impressed if you tell me that you're the most trustworthy person out there, because frankly, that sounds a little bit risky. What I want to know is why your information is so good. Who is it that you have relationships? What is the due diligence that you go through? Why is it that I should be investing my money with, your, with you in terms of the, the social responsibility aspect of the investment I might be making. Where are you going to put my money? I don't want to know that I can trust you because I expect that. And I think all too often we have expectations that we hold internally that we don't interrogate. Um, and until you go back and reverse engineer a process like the Quest formula, for example, um, that helps you to see more clearly, well, what am I holding as an unconscious belief about something for you to go and make your marketing infinitely more effective because you're no longer running on autopilot. Yeah, and, and I think this is extremely important and, and so obvious that I think many overlook, especially the more, let's uh, is it uh, right brain, that more analytical type, academic, scholarly? Mm -hmm. So if we're in, um, an engineer or an architect where we've had to do a lot of academia to get to where we are, 
oftentimes we try to drive out emotion, especially like a software engineer or engineers, we drive out emotion because we, we don't need emotion in what we do. We need facts. We need reality, right? We need to measure and test. And mm -hmm. so that said, they, they are so as matter of fact about what they do, and it gets into a feature pitch, and nobody cares about your features. They really want to know, can you solve a problem that I have? I, I just want help, right? You don't walk into a heater uh, and to buy a heater because you're looking for, you know, the best energy efficient or the most uh, eloquently designed. No, you're looking for something that's going to keep you warm and not look ugly, right? So you can look at them, right? There's, there's ulterior motives, and I think so many people miss that. So talk to the, talk to that really... Um, analytical person and tying this back to those tiny incremental movements to create that landslide slide or mm -hmm. hyper growth and effectiveness of your language what are some maybe what are some steps that they can take to improve in these areas oh, and uh, by the way let's blame them and not us too right me included mm. <laughs> no 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 not at all i think so um first point there is that i would say that sometimes that 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 sort of analytical mind, that analytical nature can be a real strength when you apply it in the right way. So, you know, I think that people that, that are analytical are no more or less feeling than the ones who are slightly more subjective, definitely throw myself in that category. One of the things that's very interesting um, is the filters that we have mentally that separate our conscious and subconscious mind. And in terms of the filters that we have, we have these subconscious beliefs. We have sponsoring thoughts about, I believe I can do this um, as a salesperson because uh, I know that I'm good at sales. I know that I'm good in this area. Um, and I, this is the, the narrative, the story that I've, I've got in my mind about who I am and what I do. Fantastic. Um, if you are an analytical person or you are a software engineer or something of that ilk um, and you don't believe that you're a very emotive person or that you're particularly interpersonal, you might really struggle to sell the emotional benefits of uh, something like software as a service, for example. You can talk ad infinitum about the wonderful things that it's going to deliver in terms of it's got this feature and that feature and it'll automate this process and it'll do that and it'll do this and it integrates with this and that's wonderful and everybody's got bells and whistles. But actually, if I'm buying SaaS software from you, I just kind of want to know how it's going to make my life better. Right. So take your analytical brain and do something that is called speed writing. And speed writing is what changes, opens the trap door between your conscious and subconscious minds. And I know that sounds a bit woo-woo, but I promise you it works. So what you want to do is get into what you believe about what it is your customer wants. And you might not even realize that you have a preconceived notion of what it is that your customer is looking for. So if you find there's a, a disconnect between how you're closing someone and them not wanting to close, it's probably because you haven't made the emotional benefit resonate with what they're looking for. Yeah, so let's let's hit on that. So a, a lot of times uh, there's the great content out there. So Steve Blank um, deals a lot with startups and he talks about uh, target market fit, right? Or product market fit rather. So we don't oftentimes see good product market fit because people aren't paying attention to this. They have this belief um, that one, if I build a better mousetrap, they're just going to buy, which is completely erroneous. Two, that if I'm feature rich, they're going to buy from us, which is completely erroneous again, because how many times do we need to hear people buy emotionally, they, they, they justify intellectually. And so if we do that product market fit interview and we reach out to people, and we get the messaging down. So I just read a, a great, uh, great, art, or great book. Um, obviously, awesome. Have you heard of that at all? I haven't. So no. obviously, awesome. And I'll have to look look up the name of it or the name of the author. It's April something or other else. Um, so if anyone knows April something or other else, I'll get her, right, her exact name here. Uh, definitely would love an introduction and have her on here. But it gets to that. How do we position this with emotional language? to get people involved, to poke them, right? To poke the bear, pour wound in the, in the pour, pour wound or salt into the wound, like you, like you said, and get them to help. Because if I don't believe I have a problem and I'm walking like a zombie through life and I'm thinking this is the best that I have, I'm not, I'm doing you a disservice. So my really encourage, I'd really encourage all of us out there to get good at this stuff, to get good at marketing, the linguistics of it and sales in the linguistics and, and the execution of it so we can help these people because otherwise they're just living out in misery. So it's April 
Dunford, N or D-U-N-F-O-R-D, April Dunford of Obviously Awesome. If anyone knows her, make an introduction, please, and we'll give her on, on the podcast. But thoughts on that? I just went through a, a little bit of a monologue there. Sorry about that. No, not at all. Um, I think, yeah, I think we're all, so we operate on, on autopilot, right? right. So as, as human beings, we operate because we are, you know, neurologically programmed to make life as easy for ourselves as possible. That's, that's, that's just what we do. You know, we automate mentally so much of what we, uh, we do day to day. I think that the, the trap of being good can be a dangerous one because when you're, when you're good at some things, there's a real temp temptation to rest on your laurels or rest on our laurels, I should say, because we're definitely guilty of doing that too. Um, and when it comes to the speed writing exercises or making your language conscious, um, you start to see all of those blind spots that were hidden from you previously. And I think that is so exciting when you can apply it to all the interactions that you have, whether it's from a marketing perspective, whether it's from a sale. I mean, marketing research is so important. Why? Because you don't market on assumption. <laughs> why would not. you, Why would? well, exactly. But why would you sell on an assumption? You know, the worst marketing campaigns we've seen have been the ones that have been made on assumption. Um, you know, I'm sure someone's got a, a, you know, a hall of fame, the inverse of a hall of trash, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but, you know, when we, when we assume things, I mean, there's that really, that's a cute phrase, isn't it? Like assume makes an ass out of you and me, but it is, it's the assumptions that we make about certain things, um, that we don't stop to interrogate that cause us the most problems. And I think that when we look at interrogating our language, and I do say interrogate very deliberately because we do need to question what it is that we're saying. We need to question what we're saying and how it's being received because all too often, we don't think about whether or not the words I'm saying make the same sense in your head, Brian, as they do in mine. And that's why we need to sort of ratify and confirm during the sales process, if I've understood your problem correctly. But we, we only seem to keep that in the silo of sales. We don't seem to apply that to other elements of, of the processor of our business lives. And frankly, I think a lot of our lives would be improved if we applied that thinking to more areas. Which ties back to that active listening part, right? The exactly. only way that I can ensure that I'm, I'm summing things up well is by paraphrasing back what I understand to get that active listening and trust. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about, I, I, I want to transition to all right, in order to hit those that don't believe that they have a problem, to get people out of their comfort zone, because let's face it, nobody wants, well, very few people want to change. Mm. And without change, we don't see improvement. So before we jump into that, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the speed writing exercise. I've not oh, heard sure. about that. So can you give us some tips or tricks or where oh, we should go about that one? I would be thrilled. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, it's got to be done on pen and paper. And I know I sound like a Luddite <laughs> for, for insisting on that. It needs to be done on pen and paper because there is something about the sort of muscle mind connection of writing something down that seems to free up mentally what we're being said. It's also harder to delete. Yes, you can score it out, but you can still read it underneath your scribbles. So advocation for pen and paper. Then you need to ask yourself at least three questions, but you're only going to give yourself 60 seconds to answer each one as fast and as honestly as you can. So you're not going to censor yourself. You're not going to filter yourself. And the question you might like to ask is, what do I really believe about the needs of this customer, for example? So write that question out and then get your, your blank piece of paper underneath set a timer for 60 seconds and then write as much and as fast as you can. Really fun to do this one around pricing and value as well, especially if you have a problem with believing in the value of what you're selling. So you might believe I have the most competitive price, but you're not actually adding value. People don't buy on price, they buy on value. And we should be selling on value, not on price. So ask yourself, what is it I believe about the value of this product? And then 60 seconds and you go until the timer stops, pen down, shake out your hand crab, um, and then uh, reread re what you've written, because you will be surprised by what comes up. And the idea is that, that you take whatever is bubbling up from the subconscious to the conscious mind as quickly as possible. And that means you're not filtering out what you think is an appropriate answer. It stops the preconceived ideas you have of getting in the way of what you secretly really believe that is running your autopilot, running on autopilot underneath the surface. Interesting. So it's it's a different way of maybe doing what I call mind mapping. So you just put the question that you want to hit in the middle and then bubble out the ideas off of that. So you're just Fantastic. speed writing everything that comes out to you. Is that is sure. that kind of the, the same thing or am I it's a little similar. Bit off? No, no, no. I think it's similar. I think that when you're looking at the speed writing, I always use this as an exercise in understanding 
internal beliefs. Okay. So, um, you know, a mind map is, is fantastic in terms of plotting all the different opportunities. I think that speed writing is slightly more about drilling into the core of the issue, perhaps. Interesting. So there's no one, two, three best questions or five best questions. It's really, what am I truly seeking to understand mm -hmm. and, or why I believe a certain thing? Is that, mm -hmm. is that? It is. It's, it's a, you could always kind of caveat it by saying, if I was being really honest with myself, what would I be saying? Ooh. And that's, that's a fun one from a linguistics perspective, because there'll be words that come up repeatedly that you may not even realize. This is also true when we look at doing, um, or what I look at doing audits for competitors' websites, for example, or um, for my client's website. And I will scrape the data from their website, which they may have written the copy themselves. And that's not always a bad thing. Um, but I'll scrape the data and I'll put it into a corpus. And then I will go through to see how many instances of certain words are emerging. This is also a really fun one to do on testimonials from customers um, or on uh, survey feedback and results. And you look at the frequency of which words become most often cited. So in testimonials um, that you might receive as a salesperson, you might get genuine, generous, trustworthy, reliable, frequently, more frequently than you thinking of yourself as being values focused, customer focused, you know, you, right. you might have one view of yourself and this is a way of developing another. And the Jahari window exercise is a great way of doing this. And that's J-O-H-A-R-I. Um, and that is a, a quadrant. So it's a, it's a sort of square of four squares. And then you have what I believe about myself, what I think others believe about myself, about who I am, what I know others believe about me, and what others believe about me that I didn't realize. And you go and you ask questions to help you fill in those gaps. Um, and I'm sure with a quick a quick Google search, you could find out you know, a bit more about that online. Um, but really it's about when we look at the things we've written about ourselves without really, again, interrogating uh, the language that we've used, when we look at it from a more objective perspective, we actually see that there are narratives that are, that are occurring underneath the surface that are informing, whether we realize it or not, how we think about ourselves and how we interact with other people. Which is why I say that when you can make those tiny incremental shifts in your language, either through becoming more conscious, tweaking the vocabulary that you use, um, increasing your use of metrics, you start to see a greater improvement in all areas of your life. Um, and the 1% to become a hundred times better actually comes from the, um, I think it's the English rugby team when they won the Rugby World Cup in 2003. Are you a rugby man, Brian? I wish I was, but over here in the States, we do we do uh, football with a non-kicking football. With a non, yes, you do. Well, what, was it the Super Bowl that was on Sunday just past? It was, so, yes. Well done, Tom Brady, for his seventh win, as I understand it. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's quite something. Um, but the um, but the thing with the the English rugby team was that they they really hadn't been particularly successful before two thousand and three, and everybody, you know, at least in my sphere of, of influence, uh, remembers two thousand and three as being such a significant game. We always think about Johnny Wilkinson landing that phenomenal kick in the last few seconds through the Australian goalposts, um, you know, and, and winning the World Cup in with with milliseconds to spare. It is it's worth going back and watching honestly because it was a tremendous sporting moment. It really was phenomenal. But the reason that he got there to make that kick in the last few seconds of that match was because the team had focused on getting 1% better at 100 different things. And the same is true of your language. So he was able to be there because of the concerted effort of 12 people around him, all of which had looked at, well, what can we correct by 1%, improve by 1% to make that significant landslide difference? The same is true of your language. Can you look at tweaking your email subject lines? Can you look at changing the way you close your sentences? Can you look at asking more questions, writing choppier copy, mirroring more of the language that you hear someone saying, pausing for more than 0 0.3 seconds when you ask a, uh, someone a question? What is it that you can tweak just a little bit? Because again, we, we do like to be within our realm of comfort, don't we? So this is a really great way of breaking out of that comfort zone in a way that doesn't feel too onerous because you're just tweaking one little thing every time, but the results really do add up. So I was just looking back at my, my bookshelf. So Atomic Habits by James. Oh, James Clear, we yes. love him. Mm -hmm. and, and he brings up another uh, English sports sports analogy is that the uh, English bicycle, um, 
cyclists, right? Yeah, is indeed. that 1% better and that 1% mm -hmm. better is key. Mm -hmm. Now, a couple of key things come out of this with this jo jo Johari exercise. Mm -hmm. That might be really interesting, not only from a sales and marketing perspective, but also from a self-awareness point of view for management and leadership and interpersonal skills is a really good way of, of, of leveraging that. It also gets to a belief, belief. You don't lose on price ever. Price is not necessarily even on value. Price is based on a belief. It's who's going to believe it. Do you believe that you have the value and you can get others to believe? Or do you believe that you're not worth it, that you don't have the value? And, and that other person who's beating you up on price, you believe them. So price is about belief. So I, I really love this. Uh, back to that um, John Ross. I can't remember where he, he picked this up. But he, he used to talk about... Um, Bob the Builder. Do, do they have Bob the Builder over in England? We have Bob the Builder. God, okay. So over Bob the Builder, they said, can we do it? Yes, we can. So what you've really said here is through this speed writing exercise, we can find out why we truly believe. Can we do it? Yes, we can to, to drive our belief because the way that we think determines the way that we feel or the, the way that we feel determines the way that we act and the way we act, we have to justify our thinking if we're mm -hmm. led by feelings. And really what I'm what I'm seeing here is you're suggesting yet again another um, good mentor of mine by the name of Bruce Bickle said, no, 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 that's backwards. Think, act, feel. The way you think, and I can get this thinking right, drives my actions so I'm going to be very intentional. I don't, I'm not... I don't naturally ask questions. I have no patience for it. I just want to tell you what to do, right? I have horrible patience. So I have to think that asking questions is very good and I need to do this. So I act intentionally to do that. And then I feel good because of the results that come out of this. So if we're led by thinking, we feel better as opposed to being slaves as our feelings. So I really like what you put out there. I wasn't expecting that to come out of this today. No, but you make such a great point there. And I think that the other thing is, is to remember is that whilst feelings are important, they are not facts. Right. They, they aren't. And I think that all too often, um, and this is, this is a very much a personal opinion, because I'm sure there are going to be some feathers, feathers ruffled by the idea that saying, well, feelings aren't facts. Um, that's not to diminish your feelings, because feelings are important and they should be taken into account. You tick someone off during a sales conversation, they're gonna feel angry, they're not gonna to want to do business with you, doesn't really matter. So yes, feelings are absolutely important, but what you feel about, how, about what you need to do shouldn't be a reason for you not doing it. If you know that the right thing to do is to change the beliefs that you have so that you're gonna think slightly different thoughts, so you're gonna ask those questions and be more of a patient person, you need to change the belief first. You can't just think to yourself, oh, I don't really feel like doing it today. Because frankly, that's going to get you nowhere. Um, and then there's a real loss of accountability. So, you know, it's, it's again, I don't want to sound like I'm sort of uh, awful intellectual. He's a bit retentive. But the Stoics have really nailed it as far as, look, change, challenge how you respond to certain things. And, and you know, again, to get my linguistics cap on, when we look at the etymology of the word um, responsibility, if you're taking responsibility for your language, you're taking responsibility for your career and the things you do inside it, you're taking the words response and ability, which is your ability to respond rather than react. If you are leading with your feelings all the time, you'll be living from a place of reaction. Yes. And, victim, a, and victimhood. And victim mindset, exactly. Right. Fixed mindset, victim thinking. Um, I read a quote the other day that says, victims don't win. And I thought, oh, actually, that's, that's true. And I imagine that quite a lot of people out there would not like to hear it. And, and the other thing is victims don't win and victims can't fix it. Oh, I love that. Right? Because mm. if I'm a victim, I don't have any control. Whereas if I take control over it, then I can incrementally 1% mm -hmm. improve, improve, improve. And it's, mm -hmm. to use the Queen's English, it ain't easy. So we <laughs> have to figure it out, right? So, all right. Now, let's tie this back to um, that question about the email hook. So mm. what are maybe some ideas on email hook? And if you have, if, and then we'll wind this down. We were a little bit start, uh, late starting trying to get all the technology to work. So are you hard, hard stop here? And so James, no, maybe. No, not um, at all. Okay, perfect. I was going to say, James, maybe could take this portion out. So, okay. So since we have a, a little bit extra time, let's go on. How do we, how do we effectively take all that we've been talking about and do these email hooks? Because I saw a, a, a 
LinkedIn post the other day where you're supposed to have three words. And then if it's on the sixth email, you're supposed to have 16 words or something like that. There's so many different points of view out there. Help us with this, these, these email hooks. Yeah. So uh, first of all, just from a, an ease of reading perspective, try to keep it less than 35 characters if humanly possible. Um, now, to me, that includes spaces. Uh, some people might like to decide it doesn't include spaces. It's entirely up to you. But try and aim for keeping it as short and as sweet as possible. And you want to try and lead with some kind of emotion or some kind of question. One of the risks here is that when so many of this, when, when so many of these um, shorter, choppier pieces of microcopy are used repetitively, they can get very samey. Putting someone's name in an email is a great way to hook them, especially if you can do your personalization correctly if you're sending out a mass email. Yeah. If you're not confident, don't do it. Um, but you need to give someone a reason to open up their email. So being, and that really, I think, comes from a place of, again, this belief, this core of belief that we've talked about a lot today, um, is really believing that being in someone's email inbox is a privilege. And you're not guaranteed a right to be there. We get so much email that it's so difficult to see the wood for the trees. So I would always recommend, unless you're sending out a newsletter, tailor the email to the person that you're sending it to by tailoring the subject line. So that might be if you're selling, for example, if you're looking to invite someone to a webinar about a particular sales solution that you might have, um, try and segment it if possible. So you can then write an email subject line that says, you know, um, hey, name we've got the solution to X problem here for you. And it's almost becomes formulaic, which can be, again, can be dangerous. Um, but you want to really couch it in, what do I know about the need of this person? And what need is this email solving? And that comes back to, do you know why you're sending the email in the first place? Right. And that's a really, really core issue that I see with a lot of clients who are like, well, we've got a website. Great, okay, but, uh, why? No one ever stops to think, why do I have a website? Why am I sending an email? Why am I doing a webinar? What value am I adding? So I'll, I'll play the, the, the advocate here on the other side is, well, to drive sales, clearly. Mm-hmm. So, so how, what would the response, because that, that's the, the snarky response that you're going to get. Well, it's to get customers. It's to of get course. customers. Yeah. Of course. Great. Okay. Uh, what's the benefit for your client? Because the sale is all about you. Well, I'll sell their solution. Okay. What's your solution? Blah, 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 right? So, blah, 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 right? So stick that in your email subject line. Got it. Okay, so... Tailor your solution that you're offering with the work that you're doing when you know why you're doing the work, which is to deliver that solution. Interesting. Possibly. So really what you're suggesting is is dig it down. Like you hear the called the five whys. So di- why is that important? Or so what, so what, so what mm-hmm. kind of thing. So driving that down to the to the heart of it so you're not doing features and benefits, but really driving down to the, the so what and putting mm-hmm. the so what in the subject line. Is that kind of something? That's a great way well? to put it. Yes, it is. I think really a lot of people look to emotional provocation in email subject lines, which is a tough one because you have such a small amount of space to work with it. Um, so again, another one is, is, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan always, but clickbait mm-hmm. is, is a really, really great way to do it. Um, so I have a sales newsletter called sales shouldn't suck. Um, and on the, uh, the highest opening rate I ever had, uh, which was, I think something like 91.36%, wow. which was ridiculous, um, was the email subject line. This is great, but the Fox emojis and the, sorry, that the, the Fox giggles and bath emojis are better. <laughs> or something to that to that effect and it makes people smile it makes people grin and it makes people want to say right okay well hang on oh i've got to go and see what this is now oh damn it and you then <laughs> have to make the content within the email worth their while so try not to be too much of a of a, a slave to that perfect email hook done is better than perfect in most instances absolutely and if something isn't working go back and look at your metrics for goodness sake Go back and understand what's working and what isn't. The reason that I know that I can talk about fox giggles and bath emojis is because I know that the metric works. You know, I know that it was 91.36% open rate, whereas I've done others that have been slightly more emotive that haven't landed as well. So you're going to have to tailor that subject line formula to your audience. Keep it short, keep it sweet, do the so what, provide some kind of emotional response. Now, how much do we need to tie in the subject line to the body of the email? Is that important or is because... (sighs) Yes. 
Yeah, I think it is. And I think that because the, I've been speaking from a personal perspective, I get really peeved if I've opened up an email and I, the subject line has told me one thing and now I'm reading something completely different. What you can do is you can link it back at the bottom in a humorous kind of way a couple of times. I wouldn't recommend doing this all the time. So if your, if your email, for example, is all about how you think get rich quick schemes are rubbish, but you want to divert someone, you can do open up this email, we'll give you the solution to $100,000 in a few simple steps. Okay. Someone's going to open that email and think, oh, I'm going to get $100,000 in a few simple steps. It's amazing. And then you can go to King. But let's talk about the issue with get rich quick schemes. That's yeah. funny because you've addressed directly the subject line and the diversion within the body copy of the email. Interesting. So we, um, we say there is no silver bullet, right? The right approach, just like this linguistic stuff, there's no silver bullet. It takes work and effort and study, but a little bit over time gets you there. So what you're suggesting there is an email bullet of um, here's your silver bullet. Hey, name. Sorry, there's never a silver bullet. If you're looking, you've probably been sold that, right? So that that would be the tie-in there. Absolutely, and it's um, I uh, contributed to a brilliant book called She Made It by a British journalist and um, entrepreneur called Angelica Marlin. And ironically, I you know one of the not ironically, but it's just it's it's interesting that it's mirrored here in this conversation. Is one of the, the things that I contributed to was that there is no silver bullet for a solid gold reputation. Right. There isn't, you know, we, we all dream of the idea of silver bullets because we want everything to be easy and simple for us. Um, but that it doesn't exist. You can talk about it and then subvert it by saying, actually, here are the things that are going to get you great results in the long run yeah. that you maybe want to consider making a habit in the short term. Um, but no, there's not a magical formula. You know, it's like Lionel Messi says, um, it took me what are 17 so 17 years and 144 days to become an overnight success. Exactly. That's it. So I'm, I'm a little bit behind the power curve. They say 10 years to become a become a, a success. And so I'm, I'm still grinding it out. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> you and me both. Don't worry about it. Bro. Yeah, right. So, all right. Um, I can't thank you enough for this has been really, really good. A lot. Um, a lot deeper than I was anticipating, which is which hopefully uh, enjoyable and, and more important than that. A lot of one two how to do tactical Here's the idea, go and do. So please, 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 knowledge for knowledge sake is pointless. Go out and apply this stuff. Let's let's really wind this down. So maybe one challenge that you've seen your clients or others make that we should we should work to avoid from whether it's on marketing or a linguistic side or messaging. One one thing that we you've seen over and over and over again that we should avoid. Thinking that you know what your customer wants without doing your due diligence and checking. I see this so frequently um, with my own clients, with, with businesses that are out there. Um, being assumptive is one of the most dangerous things you can do in sales and marketing. Yeah. And it's dangerous because at, at worst, you're gonna, you're gonna really tick someone off. And at best, probably gonna, well, sorry, at worst you're gonna tick someone off or lose a sale. And at best, people are gonna dismiss you. And in a, in a world that is so loud and so competitive and so noisy, you don't get that second chance. So for heaven's sake, don't assume that you know what your customer wants. Yeah. And don't assume that you can find out without asking them. Do the work. Do the prep. Do the work. Yeah. The, the work is to keep doing the work. Yeah. All right. And then uh, that's that's rather quite good. And then uh, uh, one specific hack for us, and I think you gave us several, so you can just say one of those, um, but in around talent, hiring for this, sales and marketing mm. or scaling the business. Okay. So a hack in scaling the business or hiring talent. Or sales or marketing. And you or could sales learn. or marketing. <laughs> or any of the above. Um, I think really, to me, this is actually probably a, a, worth an entirely separate conversation. Look at me subtly inviting myself back on your podcast. No, <laughs> uh, but really, I think it's about looking at strategy and understanding strategically what the gaps are in your business, in your sales and marketing outputs, or in your uh, approach to things. And then how do you plug that gap? How do you close that gap? Um, and that might be hiring someone who looks very, very different to you for a specific role that you know they're going to be brilliant at, even if they do rub you up the wrong way slightly. Um, when it comes to your sales pitch, what am I missing? Go back, look at it. Don't assume that you know what you're what you're after. Same with marketing. Go and check. Have have we met the gaps? Have we delivered the value for you that we said we would do? And it's really being strategic around. Well, where do I want to go? And let's reverse engineer what needs to happen 
to get to that point. And don't be afraid of course correcting. That's another really important thing. The, there's that wonderful uh, cartoon I think we've all seen where we expect success to be a linear arrow. <laughs> and in actual fact, it looks like this. Right. Um, but as long as you have an anchor that is dragging you forward and you've thrown that anchor forward and you said, that's where I'm going to go, you are at least making some kind of progress, even if it isn't always in a linear fashion. So, you know, it's it's hysterical. I can just hear people pulling out their, their hair and screaming, ah! I don't want strategy. I want the silver bullet. But again, yeah. it goes back to that planning and, and, and deep work, that deep thinking. We have to figure out what it, where we want to go, what's the strategy that we're going to employ to get there, reverse engineer the plan, and then track your metrics and how many times have you brought that up today to see how you're doing against that plan. And then from that, if we're not seeing the progress, what tweaks do we need to make upon the along the way? So it's mm. once again, nothing mm -hmm. new under the sun, but people are like, oh, I hate strategy. But hey, guess what? Suck it up. Do it. <laughs> so you know, my, my hack for that today. Sorry, very brief use is start today because you, you will be the same age. When 10 years down the line, that 10 year success with both going for Brian, um, you know, you'll be 10 years older by that time. But if you start today and you do something little and incremental every day, you'll be so much further ahead by the time you re that, reach that 10 year mark. And the time is going to pass anyway. So you might as well just get started and stop whining. Yeah, precisely. The old, the old uh, yeah. cliche, when, when's the best time to plant a tree for shade 20 years ago? When's the next best time? Now. So uh, resource that you might recommend of how do we be uh, become as brilliant as you? Not that we ever oh, will be around no. linguistics and how to do these things. Any any uh, books or podcasts or guides that you might suggest? Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, obviously this one um, <laughs> in terms of podcasts. Um, and in terms of, um, of books, yeah, I mean, you can't beat the greats. People like Zig Ziglar, you know, you can get anything that you want in this world as long as you are prepared to help enough people get what they want first. Yeah, I think it's such powerful advice. So, I mean, he's one of the greats for a reason. Um, and in terms of, of other resources, I think, honestly, I've been blown away by the LinkedIn community. I think people are so phenomenally jealous, jealous, generous, my apologies. <laughs> people are so phenomenally generous with their time and everything that I have learned really in the last year and a half and the reason for my success has been because of the generosity of people on LinkedIn. And I think that there is knowledge and treasure to be found in so many people if you take the time to look for it. So my encouragement would be to ask the people around you, try and expand that network um, and, uh, and let me know who, who you like and who you get on with and who you find. Cause you know, the more people that you, you know, you know about and can learn from the better. Nice. Now, um, how about uh, future trends? What do you see coming down the future trends from, and I would couch this from a ling linguistic standpoint, because of the noise out there, what, what trends do you see that we'll need to do because of the noise and all that's coming out from marketing and sales automation mm. and enablement? That's a great question. That's a really great question. Well, I think what's interesting is a trend we're seeing unfold at the moment, which is um, the rise of automated copy hmm. um, and automated text. And that's not to say it doesn't work, there are things like copy.ai out there that do a really, really phenomenal job if you put something really good in there. <laughs> I think what's important to remember when it comes to trends is that there is something to be said for automating the processes that a lot of us find quite laborious, um, but they will only be as good as their input. And that's really, really important to remember is that, yes, absolutely, it's going to get noisier and it's going to get louder from a marketing perspective. I think there's going to be more of a, an appetite for authenticity. There's already an emerging appetite, as there should be, for um, an increase in diversity and equity and equality in the workplace. Um, but really, when it comes to marketing messages, I think the messages that will do best are the ones that have the most thought and research put into them and then delivery, excellent delivery on the execution. And that's because there will be so much out there that's churn, that it will be vital to be distinctive by doing the groundwork. And I think a lot of people will look to skip that in the name of efficacy. Interesting, so we've figured out all of these tools and technologies to speed up. And what you're suggesting is the way to stand out in the future is to slow down and, and I think to a degree, yes. So what's very interesting is um, I had a conversation with a guy called Will Aldred, or Aldred maybe, um, I think it might be Aldred, from a company called Lavender. And Lavender are doing really, really great work in the, the MarTech 
side of things where they are automating your email processes. Now, arguably, email is one of the biggest drains on all of our time. We spend so much of our time basically being message routers and we send one piece of information to somewhere else. Um, but email is also one of the most primary ways that we converse, especially at the moment under the pandemic. So what's interesting is that uh, Will and his team have developed a really phenomenal way of um, leveraging email, leveraging technology within an email to read and understand and in theory, potentially automate in future, um, better email practices that will cause better results, better conversations, giving you more time to get to the good stuff. But again, it'll only be as good as what's put into that process. And I think that that's where you can't really skip the learning side of things. I think there's a real temptation to, especially with, with maybe with my generation, with millennials and with, with people from um, you know younger generations to automate and kind of make everything as quick as possible. Um, but a lot of people also think that experience is, is what's so important. And it is, experience is hugely important, but you need to make sure it is, it's a, it's a growth curve, it's a, it's a trend upwards. Um, and that you're not just repeating the same year of experience over and over again. So you do need to be looking for ways to innovate and you do need to take the time to synthesize what you've learned and put it into practice. So yes, absolutely, it's about slowing down and slowing down in terms of we don't need to get there as fast as we can. We need to get there as well and as quickly as we can. And I think that balance is going to be a tricky one to strike. But the ones that do will be the ones that come out ahead. So move as fast as practicable. Yes, I think so. I think nice. so. Well, I can't thank you enough, Eloise. This was awesome today. So much stuff. So last question is this. Who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should they reach out to you? Oh, still with the great questions. Um, so if you are a company that is looking for support on a refinement or redevelopment or even just an audit of your current brand, if you are concerned that you're not speaking to your customers in a way that's landing with them, um, and if you are looking for expert copywriting services that are rooted in linguistics, I would be delighted to hear from you. My website is www.olimcoms.com. That's O-L-I-M-C-O-M-M-S.com. Um, you can find my email through there. I would be thrilled to hear from you. Um, and the reason that you should get in touch is because what I do drives results. And as I mentioned very briefly earlier, it can be anything from a 343.9% increase in terms of communications campaign reach. It can be uh, an increase by 121% or increasement increase. That wasn't a great thing to say. <laughs> an increase by 121% in terms of, um, you know, CTA responses. Yeah, it varies. But what we do works and what we do gets results. So if you're looking for results in those specific areas, I would be delighted to hear from you. Nice. So again, everyone, don't take this and, and just suck it in for knowledge sake, but take this for uh, application sake. So go out there, get after it, make the community better, hug somebody because it's cold out there. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Get Thanks. after it.